I think fucking James Taylor is playing in town. You can, I can hear him sound checking from the stadium. You can hear James Taylor sound checking. I can. I, it's, uh, it's bumming me out. You see, the only thing I can really speculate on, Nurse Ratchet, is the very existence of my life, with or without my wife. In, in, in terms of the human relationships, the juxtaposition of one person to another, the form, and the content. Artie, why don't you knock off the bullshit and get to the point? This is the point. This is the point, Tabor. It's not bullshit. I'm not just talking about my wife. I'm talking about my life. I can't seem to get that through to you. I'm not just talking about one person. I'm talking about everybody. I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. Do you understand? Finally! You're listening to Between Us. Welcome to Between Us. So we're going to talk to Tony Fulgham here in a little bit, a Seattle filmmaker and musician. But speaking of a career in music, um, it, it kind of makes me want to check in with my co-producer, Mason Neely. Uh, both of us have known each other since I was in ninth grade, and we were musicians together. Uh, he was a little bit more serious than I was, but we both found ourselves in a career in therapy. Um, so we're going to check in now. He lives in Wales. And uh, it's 8 a.m. here in Seattle and 4 p.m. there. Hey, Mason, how's it going? Pretty good. How do you think the podcast is going so far? I I think it's I think it's going absolutely splendidly, and it's been lovely to work with you on a thing that's you know, well I think it's co- creative and passionate, but very very different. I think it combines our our disciplines in a really great way, right? I think so. Mm-hmm. Our our um, our powers of manipulation, our thirst for money. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> I think what I think is really great about Tony is that. There's something about being a musician or an artist or part of any community that is insular that kind of there's an unspoken language and an unspoken dance that we're required to dance to prove that we belong. And to me, even when I was focusing on music as a potential career, it was so unsettling. It might have been just a tiny cringe every time someone asked me if I was playing South by Southwest this year. But I tried to care about the things that I was supposed to care about, and I couldn't. And I think that when I found therapy as a job, as a discipline, as a practice, there was something really refreshing to me about the fact that two people could sit in a room across from each other and leave all the bullshit at the door. Hmm. And I think what I find refreshing, and at this point in my life, I think that my my friends, my social scene, still consists of more artists and musicians than it does of therapists. But I've whittled it down in a way to the ones who are kind of rare, who 
understand the language and the dance, but who want to cut through it and get down to what's underneath all the bullshit. And that is actually pretty rare. I think in any scene, whether it be music, art, academia, even therapists have their own language uh, and they're constantly judging each other, right? For doing it the right way. Oh, and of course, so, their, their, own, their own language, their own defenses, their own, I don't know, points of contact, for the, yeah. their own safety mechanisms, absolutely. And so that's what I always found really refreshing about every time I would run into Tony at a party or a gathering is that he would be so interested in getting to know what's going on with me underneath the bullshit and totally willing to open up and be vulnerable about that stuff himself. And so that's what I really enjoy about him. I, I think you make a really good point. We say it's probably every line of work. It's people in any scene or any mm-hmm. subculture. And I think it is. I think no matter what little pack or little tribe you're in, I think we develop ways to make our make the world make sense and to make ourselves feel better about how terrified we are about things. And mm-hmm. I think there's something about creatives, though. And I think even though our experience in music was very different and then I pursued... I pursued a paycheck and an invoice above um, creative pleasure or creative pursuits. But, you know, in the same way that you've had to sort of, you've, your group of friends, the, the people from that world who you could take with you into this new world, there's only so many who could make that jump. It's, it's very much the same with me. I mean, I think the posturing might be different. The defenses might be different. It might be about art. But I think to find people who are who can get past past that and be vulnerable and talk about the human experience and talk about a relationship experience in a new way is, is rare. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I think so. And, and I think it's pretty profound when someone is able to drop all of that stuff and be intimate. That was a bit of my conversation with my co-producer Mason Neely about our next guest, Tony Fulgham, and why I think it's important to have people like him on the show. He's our first guest that's not a practitioner, and I think you'll see why I found it interesting. Like I mentioned, he's a musician and a filmmaker, but he's also a husband and a father. But his most interesting relationship to me was his relationship with his therapist. Here he is. How long have you been in therapy? Uh, Well, this time... Uh, this time since my friend John um, Scott died, mm-hmm. and that would have been two thousand and nine or two thousand ten, like right around two thousand nine, mm-hmm. two thousand ten that winter. And you've been with the same therapist yep. since then. Before was it different therapists? I had two different therapists before that. One was way back in the late nineties. I was suffering from panic attacks, and so I went and saw somebody their friend was seeing, and she was nice. Mm-hmm. She kind of told me what panic attacks were, so that made me feel less crazy. Uh, the second therapist I went to, mm-hmm. um, I was talking to her about some, you know, I was kind of coming back for panic attacks and stuff like that. And I'd had a really, I'd had a really rough month. This was years ago. And my wife and I had gotten an argument about something that's irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I told her, um, I told the therapist, my wife and I got in an argument about something uh, and I don't really want to talk about that yet. And then the therapist immediately uh, interrupted me and said, did you have an affair? I was like, <laughs> all right. So by the time I walked out of the room, I was like, okay, obviously you have a very preconceived notion of who I am. I wasn't, we weren't even talking about sex or infidelity or anything. When I said we had an argument and I don't want to talk about it right now. Her first reaction was that I had had an affair. 
there was no so I didn't go back to her. <laughs> what do you think was happening in that moment? I don't know, man. It was uh You you hear you heard it as about you, uh-huh. and the judgment she was making of you. Part of me interprets it as about as that it's about her and what she wanted to hear about that day. I that was my impression. It was like my my immediate reaction was like, Oh, your husband cheated on you. Mm-hmm. That was my internally. I was like, so there was a whole, I, I was just, it was weird. There was a whole bunch of projection going on there and it might've been her day. I actually went back one more time. And at the end of that, at the end of that next session, I was like, that was just, it was, it was just the wrong fit, you know? Yeah. So I didn't go back to therapy again after that for a long, a long time. But it could have been something as simple as she was having a boring day oh. and, and that she was looking for something to excite her. That's possible. It's like, she, she, way, she, it was, she seemed too angry about it, though. There was some emotion behind the question. Like it was yeah. really like she interrupted, and it was like it was sort of knifing and jabby a little bit. It was it was it was a little. Disc- it was actually, you know, I'm not easy to ruffle, and I, I got ruffled. <laughs> Either whatever motivation it was, it seems like it was her agenda mm-hmm. and not your agenda mm-hmm. that was driving the session. Yeah, I was just trying to get to the panic attacks again. I was like, right, you, you know, had oh. a you had a crisis that was and you were in need. Yeah. And she wanted to focus on sex. Yeah, exactly. Oh man, and just like you know, uh, yeah. Like I, I, I couldn't have probably defined it then, but it was just like there was like she, she immediately targeted in on some sort of like shame based stuff. I don't know. It was strange. It was a strange day. It was a strange day, and it killed therapy for me for. I guess that was another six years before I went back again. To so that was in the early two thousands. Yeah, early two thousands. Yeah. Yeah, so my buddy Scott, he's the same age as me, a little few years older than me, uh, got pancreatic cancer, and I knew he was having, I found out right at the end of his life that he was having panic attacks for the last six weeks of his life. And I know what panic attacks feel like, and I thought to myself, uh, I do not want to spend the last six weeks of my life, no matter when I die, panicking, right? So it wasn't so much about the the grieving of losing your friend, although I'm sure that was part of it. Mm-hmm. As it was like kind of self-preservational and it was 99% self-preservational. Um, I know how to grieve. That's not, that's not an issue. I don't have any issues with that. Like I could sit and be sad about my friend Scott without therapy. I know that I, I think what it was is how he died. Like how he went out was not how I want to go out. And it was, I kind of, I've always referred to it as the kind of the gift he handed me was going out so scared and me recognizing how scary that must have been for him uh, just made me realize that I still have work to do if I don't want to go out that way. If I get cancer and I'm going to go and I have six weeks to think about going out, I want to think about the life I lived and the people I loved, not what the fuck is about to happen to me, <laughs> you know? And, and, and that kind of panic is just, it's uncontrollable. And, um, yeah, I just don't want to be there ever again, especially not at the end of my life. So, Had you had those kind of preparatory thoughts about mortality before? No, I pretty much avoided that stuff until Scott. I had a, I really uh, had a kinship with him. So he was on tour when he found out he had pancreatic cancer. And it, it just it just kind of threw me for a loop that, yeah, I'm going to, I'm totally going to die. That doesn't bother me. I want to go out. Not scared. not scared. It doesn't even have to be peaceful. I could fall off a cliff and bang all the way down. I just don't want to be 
I just don't want to feel like I'm scared of my life when I go down. And you don't want to spend the time leading up to it not living. Right. And I know that when I'm in the midst of like panic attacks or depression, I am not living. I wasn't feel. I was feeling. I was on top of the world when I went and saw the guy. Like when I started therapy again, that was the, that was the big thing. Like I was not in crisis when I went to go see this guy. And the both times I'd been to therapy before that, I went because I was in crisis. So I was a little guarded when I went in. But I mean, fifty minute session, right? By minute twenty five, we were talking about everything under the sun. That guy made me feel so relaxed immediately. And um, and I, you know. I left not feeling scared. I left, I mean, it was just great. It was great. You know, uh, he's, uh, he's not the kind of guy who sits there and listens and says, well, how does that make you feel? How does that make you feel? How does that make you feel? How, how does he interact with you? Uh, we have a conversation. He gives yeah. opinions and he always, he's very clear about saying, this is my opinion. Or I would suggest before everything, you know, he's, he's, um, he's not the kind of guy that just sits and listens. He, he's very active. And so some people I've sent there, sent him to him, really vibe with that. And some people don't. And I like having a conversation that builds and yet still we're peeling away at me. Like we're not peeling away at him. You know, there's such a contrast there for how your previous therapist chose to interject her subjectivity into Mm -hmm. the conversation. For her, it was almost um, sly and like subversive. And it sounds like for him, he just says, this is what my opinion is. And very honest about how he works with that too. Uh, like as soon as as soon as you start talking to him, and the biggest thing is that when that woman said, "Did you have an affair?" She, you could just tell there was judgment and shame all over it. If he would ask me if I'd had an affair, which I didn't, for the record, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> uh, if uh, if he'd asked me if I'd had an affair, he would have had there would there's no judgment or shame involved in it at all. It's just something that happens, and we'll talk about it and deal with it. Right? It's like he doesn't, and that, and I'm and, and in the first session, we didn't we didn't get on to any of those topics at all. You know, we just were talking about my friend died, and I'm sad, and I don't want to have panic attacks in the future, and sure. I want to learn more about how to take care of myself. That was it. That was our conversation. But I could tell immediately that there was really no, there was no ground we couldn't cover. Um, and there was, there's very little I could talk about that he would have a, um, any sort of judgment. I mean, sure, if I was committing heinous crimes and came in and talked to him about him, he'd probably have an, an opinion on it. But I still think even then he would uh, deal with it in a way that was kind and compassionate. So what do you think it is that makes someone like that? He's a kind and compassionate person. So I, I tr- part of it is constitutional. Yeah. I've told the man I love him. He's like, he's such an important part of my life, but it is boundaried in this very specific world. It's 50 minutes every two, every, twice a month. Mm-hmm. And so what was interesting is going in, not in crisis, mm-hmm. uh, left me. I felt like I came in very open and we started talking about lots of stuff and, 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 uh, I referred to it as peeling back an onion kind of thing. I was like, I was like, I'm a little nervous that we're going to get to the middle of the onion at some point. And he's like, Oh, we probably will. He's like, you like to talk. It's going to be fine. We're going to get there. And when I did, it was kind of an explosion, but um, wow. yeah, I just, my relationship with him is, um, is really fantastic. And I feel, and what I've learned from him is that you can have really intense relationships with someone with really nice boundaries. So all this kind of stuff can happen. So I've actually emulated my, the model I have with him with 
with other people. Like, this is the world I live in, you know, with you. And I can intensely love you within the context of this relationship. That doesn't mean I need you to have you over for dinner every Wednesday night. You know, like, I just love you here. We don't need to be enmeshed. Right. And so uh, that kind of love without... Um, with, without trying to have it take over your world, like which I think we get pushed to do a lot when you get to the word love, it's been that's been a real huge thing I've gotten from him, and it's been fantastic. So. The first time you said it, what did he say back? That I loved him. Yeah, he said I love you too. Yeah, yeah. And was it something that the two of you talked about afterwards? I mean, was it? We might have talked about it beforehand, oh. um, and so that's that goes into the uh, the unorthodox relationship of my wife and I seeing the same therapist but not together, because mm-hmm. she had mentioned uh, that that they hug at the end of sessions, and my wife is, you know, were you jealous? No, I don't think I was jealous. I I think I was I was like, oh my gosh, that's okay, because I totally want to hug him. You know, yeah. I think that was my I think that was my reaction. Um, but we talked about it before. I was like, you know, I, I, I actually I'd had a really rough week. And I was like, you know, um, evidently, you know, we, there's lots of joking. I was like, evidently, it's okay to hug your therapist. And he laughed. And so, you know, we got a hug. And and we'd actually been talking about um, uh, my relationship with my employees at the time. I had a company at the time. And, um, and I kept referring to them as this family that I was building. And we started talking about the unreasonable expectations of look viewing someone as a family member when they're actually an employee they can that's that power structure is unequal and there's a boundary there yeah and i and so i learned how to love them within the boundaries mm-hmm. but we had been talking about that and so then it came into the conversation of being able to love my therapist within the boundaries of him being my therapist right so so you had had loving feelings for him before oh yeah was there a moment or was it more gradual uh was uh, the moment where you felt attached to him um i think it was more gradual but i think i recognized it when he hurt my feelings <laughs> really yeah uh i had uh i had a huge job and i had to i was gonna be gone all summer basically so i just i said i'm gonna i'm gonna take myself off the calendar sort of indefinitely but I'm, my plan is to you know come back around september when i came back around september around in september someone he was full well, he had my, my, someone had my slot, right? And so that didn't hurt my feelings, but I made a joke about it. And he got his feelings hurt when I made a joke about it because he felt, he's, he thought I was actually upset about someone get, someone else getting my slot. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, when you disappear all summer and, it, and, and suddenly he became human and that was like, and that made me uncomfortable. And, you know, it was just, just this, I mean, seriously, like a 10 second interaction. And I came back in the next session. I was like, Listen, listen. I, I think I got my feelings hurt, and I think you got your feelings a little hurt. And you said that. Yeah, you brought it up. Yeah, right at the get, right at the get, right at the get go. So where do you want to start today? That's what I started with. At the point that happened, it was you know it was my work with him that allowed me to come in and say that yeah. to him, right? But we had a great talk that day, and I think that's when that might have been that might have actually been the hug session. I can't remember, but that's when we went from from like he understood that I understood our boundaries and that. It was just, you know, like any relationship, it just kind of grows. So for him to be demoted down to human was the moment where you realized that you could love him. Yeah. Seems like that in and of itself is like a really important kind of revelation. Oh, I mean, for our, for our outside relationships as well. Yeah. Well, and that's the, um, 
and that's the huge thing I've gotten from him is that uh, is that and all the relationships, but also just understanding uh, what how do I put this? What is the other person and what is me? Like, mm-hmm. you know, because we fill in the gaps when we meet someone all the time. And then as we get to know them, we fill in the gaps with our own stuff that they're not giving us. And eventually they kick the stuff out that you filled in mm-hmm. and make, and they become more and more and more and more human as you kick, right. As they kick out your assumptions and fill it with, with a truth. So you realized that he was imperfect. Mm-hmm. You were able to love him. Mm-hmm. And then I'm guessing that kind of opened up new doors for you too. Uh, yeah, I think it did. Um, I think in the timeline of everything, I, you know, my wife and I did actually end up in a bit of a crisis. Uh, what felt like a crisis. What's interesting with most crises in relationships is once you figure some stuff out and you get to the other side and you look back at it. It's so goddamn simple. You almost laugh at how difficult it was to get to the other side of it. But when we were at the front of that crisis, it seemed big. Both of us had been in therapy with him for a while and we had a nice language to work with. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, my wife and I've been married for 23 years. We've been together a little over 24 and this all happened, you know, four years ago. So we've been together two decades plus by the time, you know, we'd hit something there where I actually uh, was worried that we weren't going to make it because I couldn't get my shit together. And it was it was like I'd come back to panic attacks, kind of, you know, like something had happened that made me come back to panic attacks. It was all feelings. And it was just there was no facts involved. She still loved me as much as she ever did. There was no problems. But something was flipping me out. And that was it was great. We finally got down to the core of our communication problems you know i'm a bit i mean obviously we've been here like 20 minutes and i've filled the whole fucking kitchen up with syllables right i talk i'm big i and if someone shrinks away because hmm. i'm talking about my feelings they get bigger and i fill the room up she she she'd had this habit of not um aggra- wanting to aggravate that and and make my irrational feelings get bigger so she would just kind of shut down and draw back and and I think that's a very typical relationship with a lot of people. You got the, you got the, the big consumer and, <laughs> and, uh, and the, the thing that made it so, the thing we finally got to was that when I, I was able to finally explain to her through this language that we'd learned with, with our therapist, um, I was finally able to zero in on that. My bigness is damaging. Mm-hmm. I understand that. Um, sometimes I would get paranoid still that she was going to, you know, I would, I would call her too many times while she was out with her friends or whatever. Cause I, not that I was afraid that she was doing anything wrong. I just have this irrational fear in my lizard brain that she's just going to disappear between the bar and home. Yeah. Poof. Aliens are going to take her or something like that. I definitely, that was part of the panic attack brain. Right. Mm-hmm. But I was able to, you know, so I know that that was, that was hard for her that when I would get big and scared about anything or whatever, I would just sort of swallow our relationship. But I was able finally through working with, with, with my guy to uh, explain to her that when she gets small and retreats from that, mm-hmm. it's as damaging to our relationship as my big and my consuming. So did you have to work to meet in the middle? Yeah. Well, that was the thing. Was like when I said that to her, it's like, it hurts me as much for you to get quiet as it does for you to me, for me to freak out and get big. And then like the light bulb went off over both of our heads and 
And then she started calling me out my shit and we were happy. <laughs> I, mean, it was, I mean, I hate to say that it was that simple, but it kind of was. I haven't lost my temper in a very long time, probably since I started going to this therapist. Uh, but there were times in my life where I could lose my shit and just, I mean, I'm good at tearing somebody down to the bone. Not too loud, but loud enough to make, I, you know, when I feel like I've been betrayed, and that's my thing, right? If I feel like I've been betrayed, I can, I can just get vicious, horrible, vicious. Never, never experienced that with my wife, but with friends. Employees? And an, an employee who I think I annually call and apologize to for this one particular incident because it made me feel so fucking horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just said horrible things. I was just like able to like, you know. And, and, and it was because I had felt betrayed. And then eventually I was talking about feelings and thoughts and facts and, and with, with my therapist. And I realized when I went back and looked at all the times that I thought I'd been betrayed or felt betrayed, I had maybe only been betrayed like 0.2% of those times, right? Like something happened to push my buttons and flipped me out and it felt that way. And it's like, well, if I feel it, it must be true. And that is the big, that's the biggest thing is like, I feel it. So it must be true is not true. (laughs) And it took me, uh, working with this guy to realize that. Something I've learned is that you don't get to decide what to feel. You only get to decide if you feel and how much, right? So I choose to feel, I choose to feel a lot. Which means when I get mad, I get really mad. Yeah. When I'm happy, I'm really fucking happy. Yeah. Uh, there are stretches of when things are going really good, I'm borderline manic. You know, like I'll swing from one side to the other fast, you know. Uh, but that's kind of my sweet spot. Like I feel like if that's happening, I'm probably doing things right. You know, I don't rage on people when I get mad. I just go kick the tires on my truck, you know, and when I'm doing it right, when I'm doing it wrong, I make my family fucking miserable. (laughs) You know, it's, uh, uh, and I, you know, I think, um, I think that also is just, uh, you know, being 47 and starting therapy when I was 41, like I went in, not in crisis, did it at the right time. There was, it's lined up with a whole bunch of other stuff. I just wanted to, I just wanted to not be a paranoid angry person so right. you know that had a lot to do with it but you know i found the right guy which helped a lot and i'm married to the right person like i got the best teammate in the world who was willing to step up and do all the same work i was doing in her own unique special way you know yeah so i think going to therapy is just profiling myself a little bit it's the most absolutely healthy narcissistic behavior ever yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I agree. <laughs> it's like, look at me, look at me. I'm looking at myself. This is awesome. You've been listening to Between Us. I'm John Totten. Between Us was produced by myself and Mason Neely, who also composed our music. As usual, find us on social media, look us up on Facebook and Twitter, let us know what you think, reach out, and take care. Take care.